David Einhorn at Greenlight wrote about this hometown international, this business that's one deli in New Jersey that was making like $30,000 a year in revenue and was trading at $100 million valuation. Right. Think about a business that makes $30,000 a year. And let's say it's a modest growth business. You put a multiple on that of, you know, be generous and call it 20 times and say that business is worth $600,000. Mm. Anyone fundamentally would be super excited to short it if it was trading at 2 million, right? It's 3x overvalued. It should go down 60%. It went up 50x from there. So there are times where stocks, you know, really get detached from fundamentals. And that's when shorting can get really dangerous. Welcome back to On The Margin. I'm joined today by my guest, Ted Sides. Ted, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. I know you just came out with this book, uh, Capital Allocators, which I definitely want to get into, but you've got this super rich uh, history in the world of investing, uh, and I thought we could actually start there. So sure. I know you kind of started your career uh, working under one of the greats, uh, David Swenson at Yale. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? I did, yeah. I started working for David right out of college. It was my first job out of school back in 1992, which some days feels like the Stone Ages. Um, and I spent, I thought I'd be there for two or three years. I spent five years there and really learned the whole art and science of manager selection and investing in this particular style of picking managers from him. And that was a really incredible period of time uh, in that he had been in the office for He'd been in the seat for seven years before I arrived. So the portfolio really had mostly taken shape in his image. It takes a while mm. for someone to turn one of these portfolios. And the group of people I worked with were the first wave and kind of the first and maybe second, not the last wave of, of people who worked for him that went on to run big pools of capital. So all of the names that you know of that older generation, like an Andy Golden at Princeton or Ellen Schumann, who recently retired, and Paul Valent has just moved from Bowdoin to Rockefeller and Seth Alexander, they were all colleagues of mine back then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yale is also kind of one of those shops where it really seems like Sunson is able to impart something on his pupils because there are a lot of very successful investors, right? That kind of came from those early days um, yeah. of working there. Yeah, I think there's a real combination of a process that was maybe more repeatable then than now that you know, I could walk through that um, everyone sort of learned. So like, the way I describe it is of the people I worked with, by and large, they were all talented, but like anything else, there's going to be a range of skills. Mm. And every single one of them was successful when they left, every single one. And so that tells you something as much about the model as the people, though I'm sure it's, it's some of both. So that was part of it. And the other part is that he is just an incredible teacher and he yeah. does have strong opinions about things. And he comes up with new things to have strong opinions about all the time. And then, you know, sitting around him, you just absorb it. And so we all had the opportunity to learn great lessons about investing before learning, you know, less good ones. <laughs> yeah. And there, there are plenty of those, I'm sure, to go around. Um, but, you know, back then, uh, you know, Swenson was very famous for pioneering what's called, you know, the endowment model or the air model. I think they're kind of used synonymously. Can you describe just kind of what that investment approach is and what made it so novel at the time? Sure. You know, it's interesting. I don't know that he created it. He certainly popularized it. So there had been, there are a few other offices at the time, but not many. So the idea was when David arrived in 1985, most institutional portfolios were diversified and then diversification meant stocks and bonds. And a lot of it was U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds. And he looked at what Yale had and said, okay, first start with what's the objective. 
or Yale has effectively perpetual capital. So extremely long time horizon. The endowment is supposed to be there to serve future generations of scholars with an S at the end. Generation 30 years, multiple 30-year periods. So really long time horizon. And then very, very little liquidity needs. There's spending, but there are also gifts that come in. And so when you have a pool of capital like that, it just makes sense to be very long-term. And he looked at that and said, well, that probably means you should own things. You should just be equity-oriented. And if you looked at the structure of most institutional portfolios then, they really weren't that diversified. You could say you were diversified within the U.S. equity market, but he said, well, it's a big world. Why is all of our equity orientation diversified in really one type of asset? So he created an asset allocation structure that included things like private equity and venture capital and equity real estate and real assets and, and hedge funds as a way of getting at equity-like returns with less correlation to some of these other asset classes. And it was an asset class structure with, with real structure and discipline to it around rebalancing and things like that. And when you review that policy portfolio, creating a policy portfolio, reviewing it once a year. And... Um, it was a very different asset allocation structure. And so he ran that portfolio, or still does, with that. The irony was when he wrote his first book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, that came out in 2000, at that moment in time, Yale had done well in spite of that asset allocation because you had a roaring bull market for stocks and right. bonds. You didn't need the diversification. But the other side of it was they were so talented at manager selection. So they were adding value in every one of those asset classes. Then he writes the book, and then you go through this 2000 to 2002 period where stocks really collapsed mm -hmm. and certain hedge fund strategies did well and private equity did well. So for the first time, really, that diversification paid significant dividends in, in the period of time shortly after he wrote the book. And that proved proof for all these other institutions to say, oh, maybe we should do what they're doing because what they did had this market improvement over everybody else in that period of time. Yeah. I think a lot of people focus when they look at um, kind of the endowment model, they focus on things like liquidity or moving into alternatives, but really like, like you just said, really at the heart of that and what differentiated uh, Swenson, I think at the end of the day was his ability to pick out really good managers, right? And um, so what did that process look like? How, why was he so successful at doing that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to know. There's a lot of it that's art. Um, and he is just exceptional at, at picking mm -hmm. talent. But there's a certain set of rules, and he wrote about them a long time ago in his book, that come from just having different frameworks of thinking about what's likely to be successful. Because you have a huge universe of managers you could choose from. I, I ran the numbers in my book and said, for any one manager to get a meeting with an institutional allocator is six times harder than it is to get for a college senior to get admitted to Yale or Harvard. So just to give a sense of how many managers are out there and how much time these allocators have to have those meetings, it's really hard. And so the question is, how do you narrow the filter with some disciplines that are more likely to be successful than not. Doesn't mean everything is perfect. Mm -hmm. So he said things like he wanted all the compensation that Yale was paying to managers to go to the managers. And mm -hmm. that ruled out things like financial institutions that had you know, big asset management. You know, Think of, you know, pick one, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Yale would mm -hmm. never invest in a product from Goldman Sachs Asset Management because David mm -hmm. said he didn't want to pay Goldman. He wanted to pay the people doing the work. Mm -hmm. So you ended up with a lot of independent organizations as one example. There was a, a lot of thought that went into how do you align your interests with your managers, compensation yeah. structure, time horizon, their own risk uh, alongside of yours. So there's all these different 
small rules that go into that process. And then you have a whole set of criteria that anyone would think about, right? So who are the people? How do they invest? What's the strategy? Does it make sense? Walk through their investment process. If you did all of that, you would find many, many more people that sort of fit than don't. So you go through all of those things and there's a huge effort that goes into trying to figure out is what you just heard true. Right. There's a lot more data now than there was then. Then it was all reference checking. But you can think about the private equity market now. There's a ton of data about past history of deals and how did the private equity firms make the money they did. Was it multiple expansion? Was it improving operations? Was it just financial leverage? And you can do the work on that and get much better information. So there's a lot of work that goes into trying to figure out you know, who's really good at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, it's just a judgment call. And I've never seen anyone in my career as good at that judgment call as David and the people on this team. Yeah. Can you talk us through what the perception was from an allocator standpoint of hedge funds uh, back at that time? Because right now, you know, it's just, you know, hedge funds are kind of the masters of the universe and they manage trillions of dollars on a global basis. But at one point, right, hedge funds were kind of seen as this uh, opaque, weird kind of structure and it wasn't super well understood. And I think, right, uh, Yale actually led the first hedge fund investment on the endowment side, right, with Farallon. So talk a little bit about what was the perception of hedge funds back in the day? I mean, back then in the early 90s, most people didn't know about it. Mm. And the the types, the, the way I would describe it is, think about a merger arbitrage strategy, which most people understand today. Mm. In the early 90s, there were very, very few people who had been trained as investment bankers which meant that in the universe of money managers, there weren't that many people who understood how deals worked. Mm. So to understand just, oh, you could buy the acquirer, you could short the, the, the acquiring company and there's a spread, it took specialized knowledge to actually understand what were those risks, what did you need to verify to see if the deal was going to go through. Mm. And as a result of that, just playing the game, everyone who played the game and knew to play the game was winning. Yeah. Um, back then, you could have a diversified portfolio of mergers that were making double-digit returns on levered. So totally mm. different market. So you think about how different opportunity sets come and go. And back then, just knowing that those strategies were available was a big part of playing the game. Now, within that, the hard part about that, first of all, is understanding that they're available, right? The information was nothing like it is today. And I can tell you a fun story about that. Um but the other part of it was everybody has a committee. And so to do something different, you have to be able to work with, it's not just one individual saying, oh, I want to invest in this. You have to be able to get that strategy or group of strategies approved by a committee. And a lot of people were not structurally set up to do that. So mm-hmm. in the early days, it was just being there and finding the opportunities. So I'll tell you the story. Right around the time I left Yale, so now you're talking 96, 97. Mm-hmm. I remember David and Dean Takahashi, his longtime number two, going to New York, coming back for the day and having a meeting saying, I can't believe this guy was managing like a billion dollars at the time and we'd never heard of him before. And it was Lewis Bacon at Moore Capital. <laughs> and so, you know, we laugh right. about that today, but there, there were, you know, Andy Golden, who runs Princeton's Endowment and sort of ran the absolute return portfolio at Yale up until when he left in 95, had a sheet of paper that listed all the hedge funds on it. And it wasn't even two sides. 
So there just there weren't that many funds available. Um, guys who shorted stocks just were people who woke up with a chip on their shoulder. Like it mm. wasn't a strategy that you did so you could extract incentive fees from somebody else. So it was a totally different game. Um, hedge funds had their heyday right around the time we started Project Partners called 2002 because you had that 2000 to 2002 window when the dot-com bubble burst a lot of those stocks were very frothy valuations. And what we think of as factor bets today, the only way you could access things like that in the past were in hedge fund strategies. So long short equity hedge funds by and large might've been long value stocks and short growth stocks. Mm. Today we say, oh, you could just do that with factors and ETFs. There were no ETFs. There was no other way to access that. Mm. And so those managers, if you look at the very early returns of like a Lone Pine or a Viking, they were making 100% You know, when markets were down 20, 30%. And so you come out of that period. Now, David's written his book describing these strategies. So people have like, sort of, okay, we can copy and paste this and bring it to our committee. And Yale's doing really well. Why don't we do that? Mm -hmm. And then you had this proof period right after that. So hedge funds started to get accepted um, into the institutional world. And then the conversation in the boardroom went from, you know, why would we do something different to why don't we have more of these hedge fund things in our portfolio? Um, and then it rode a wave, you know, up through the financial crisis, probably got tougher between then and 2011. Mm. And ever since it's been a bit of a grind, but yes, it's a big industry, but like any mature industry, it's getting more and more concentrated. So you have certain very big funds yeah. and it's harder and harder for new entrance to come in because the capital really isn't supportive of the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we could actually use some time here to just do almost a basic definition of terms on what are the different types of hedge funds that exist? Because there was a point like a couple years ago, everyone knows that word, hedge funds. I knew they lived in Greenwich. I knew all this stuff about them. I knew they had money, but I had no idea what a hedge fund was and what it was about the structure that made a hedge fund a hedge fund and not this other type of fund. So yeah. if you were to like drop hedge funds into different categories, how would you bucket the different types of hedge funds that yeah. exist? You know, I would start by saying it's a bit, it's a bit of a catch-all. So I, I don't put much meaning into the term hedge fund. Mm. By strict definition of that vernacular, it means it's a fund that's hedging something. Right. Um, hedging a risk, right? So they're, they're, you're taking some other, some risk off the table. Now, a lot of hedge funds don't hedge. So, uh, you know, I'd be a little bit careful. But even back when I was at Yale, Yale referred to those strategies as absolute return strategies. Mm. So the idea was that you're not so worried about relative returns, like mm. the beta of a market and capturing alpha. You're just trying to make money right. um, and and take out a lot of market exposure. So, mm. you know, there are different buckets. Long short equity is probably the biggest. Um, it's probably a little over half the assets in the industry. And that's you're long or you're buying a basket of stocks like a mutual fund or anything else. And then you're short. Um, which probably more people know of today after GameStop and understand what it is. But, yeah. you know, the idea is that in the, the, the old prototypical example is that if you wanted to bet on Coca-Cola stock and you just buy the stock, you're actually buying a whole bunch of different things, right? You're buying economic growth of the market as a whole, maybe the, the beta or market ex, uh, multiple expansion of the market as a whole. You're buying the consumer, the growth of consumer consumption, mm. you're buying the beverage industry, you're buying a whole bunch of different things. Right. Um, and you get all that just by buying Coke stock. Well, what if you really thought Coke had a new formula that was coming out that was going to clean Pepsi's clock? Well, one of the things you could do is you could buy Coke and short Pepsi. And mm. in doing that, 
you no longer have the market tailwind. You no longer have beverage industry exposure. You no longer have consumption growth. You just have the idiosyncratic nature of how Coke is going to do versus Pepsi. So that was like the prototypical example of a long short equity mm. trade. Um, you then have a whole bucket of um, call it event driven type investing. Mm. So merger arbitrage is, is one example of that activist investing though some would just call that a concentrated long only strategy but mm -hmm. activist investing gets put into that bucket and again there and you could think of spin-offs and other special situations so the idea there is that the idiosyncratic nature of events of those particular companies drive the returns more than the market return mm -hmm. um you then have a whole bucket of relative value strategies. So think of things like arbitrage. So you could put merger arbitrage in there too, but often fixed income arbitrage, um, convertible bond arbitrage. So those are different strategies that are generally trying to capture spreads. Mm. Um, and then the last is macro. So macro tends to be trading oriented, uh, tends to be market movements, um, instrument movements, think of interest rates or currencies and things. And it's really a trader trying to outfox other participants and just make money. Nice. And what about, I, I kind of hear, I, this is something I don't understand super well, but what about kind of like platform models in the world of hedge funds? What, what, what does that actually mean when yeah. people talk about that? So again, it can mean a lot of things. I think right. that most of what people are talking about, I would come a little bit away from model. It's much mm. easier to say what they're really talking about is a few different hedge funds. So mm. think of Millennium, think of Citadel, think of Point72, there are a few others, maybe a D-Shaw, you know, maybe. Mm. Um, generally what they are are multi-manager platforms where each individual manager is tasked with investing in a certain silo. Mm. And um, there's a whole layer of risk management on top of them. So generally speaking, the, the stereotypical model of that is long short equity. And mm -hmm. so you could have a healthcare manager and that manager, kind of like the Coke Pepsi example, mm -hmm. they are only tasked with generating alpha or excess returns. So they right. have to be long short stocks and short stocks in the same proportion within the sector. And they right. may be able to do bets and things like that. And so what those platforms do is they take a portfolio manager, they put them into that platform and say, okay, here's your universe to play in, go play. Um, and then they sit on top of them and say, oh, by the way, you can play as long as you want. We'll pay you a ton of money as long as you don't lose 3 4% on your gross capital or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And if you do, we're going to cut your balances or we're going to kick you out. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's an incentive structure that forces a certain type of discipline onto risk management to not lose money. Mm -hmm. And if you knew that you were creating a structure that – each individual portfolio manager, and then certainly across all of them, wouldn't lose money. They might be capped in how much they can make, but they're not going to lose money. They mm -hmm. then generate the returns that investors want by putting a lot of leverage, leverage. on top of that. Got it. Got it. Understood. Um, and how has um, uh, like the structure? Of, I mean, one thing you you actually start your book with kind of this chapter on active versus passive. Right. Um, so you, you hear a lot. And I actually want to get into fees because I know you've got some some ideas there about how uh, managers should be compensated. But how has the rapid growth of passive really changed the hedge fund industry over the course of the last, say, 20 years? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly other than you can imagine that the people who have moved their money to passive are less sophisticated market participants. Right. So if you take those people out, you know, you're playing poker. There's the famous line about, you know, who's the patsy at the poker table? If you don't know who it is, it's you. Yeah. Right? Well, if you can identify those patsies and you're making money, that's great. If those people leave the table and all mm -hmm. you're left with is a bunch of other more skilled practitioners, 
it makes it hard. It doesn't mean you're all not great poker players. It just makes it hard to beat everybody else. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly a dynamic, a big dynamic, where the movement of capital to passive has, has somewhat taken out some of the less sophisticated market participants. Um, and you know, for the hedge fund industry as a whole, like the merger arbitrage example I described from long ago, mm -hmm. you could easily identify why those managers were making money because they were providing liquidity to a market for people who owned the stock that was getting taken out and they didn't want to take the risk for that last little bit. They mm -hmm. didn't really know what it was. It's like, oh, there's a deal now. We'll just, we'll just pay somebody to take us out of the positions. Mm -hmm. Now hedge funds are not so much liquidity providers as they are kind of competing with each other for liquidity as we see in a lot of different situations. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different dynamic. Um, and, and that's probably the most, the easiest one you could point to as the impact of the movement to passive from active over time. Now, you know, some theories that get tossed around, I think Mike Green has done a really good job of articulating some of these theories about just a fundamental change in market structure, right? Because what you could do is you could say, okay, I mean, what, what we just kind of talked about was back in the day, there were all these hedge fund strategies people didn't really understand. You could kind of show up and there were these people doing arbitrages that no one really understood and it was easier to make money. So maybe markets have just gotten more efficient. But on the other hand, you know, I think one of the theories that Mike Green has kind of brought to light is actually, you know, these passives, they're basically these huge mega corporations and they're actually changing the market structure by constricting the float of a lot of these companies. And that has implications for liquidity, but it has implications for price discovery. And especially if you're a long short manager, it sometimes really restricts your ability to go short on some of these stocks. Like look at what happened with GameStop. Right? How can you be short something that might go up five hundred percent because it was a meme? Um, so, you know, how is how have you thought at all about like how have these changes in market structure really impacted the hedge fund business model? Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of changes that evolve over time that can affect the model itself. Mm -hmm. um, among the things you talked about, you didn't talk about the one that is the the biggest hindrance of hedge fund returns, which is mm -hmm. simply the nominal level of interest rates. So what you own when you own a hedge fund or you're managing a hedge fund, you have investors give you a bunch of money, cash, right? You go buy stocks with that, with that cash. Right. Then you also borrow into the market stocks from other people right. and short those stocks. When you short those stocks, you receive a pile of cash. So right. what you really have is a bunch of long positions, a bunch of short positions, and a bunch of cash. Hmm. Um, in a higher interest rate environment, you make money, you make a rate of return on that cash. Mm. So for example, when Protege started in 2002, short-term interest rates were four or 5%. Mm. And just by playing the game, you would be up, call it 3%, right? There's a little bit of a cost for, for shorting. Mm. Today with rates at you know zero, you might pay 1% to play that game. That's 4% spread in what you used to make and what you make today. It has nothing to do with how your long positions do, short positions do, how the market does, nothing to do with it at all. So just by having zero nominal interest rates, mm -hmm. the hedge fund managers are already at a, at a handicap relative to where they would be if rates were higher. It has nothing to do with market movements, just the structure of the vehicle itself. In terms of market structure, um, competition has definitely made it more difficult. So the story mm -hmm. I tell, which people kind of uh, get surprised by. When I worked at Yale, a crowded short was considered one where somewhere between two and 4% of the outstanding was short. <laughs> two and two to 4% was crowded. Yeah. So 
you know, we're in a different world today and you have the possibility of short outstanding being over 100% of the float and creating short squeezes and all that kind of stuff. But even if it's not that extreme, you regularly see crowded names at 15 to 20% of the float. And not only that, there are large hedge funds. So if you looked at any of these large funds, not so much one of the platforms with pods, but someone like a Viking that's a very large single stock long and short hedge fund. Yeah. For them to short a name in their portfolio, they might need 5 to 10% of the float of a stock themselves. What? Why is that? Why is the dynamic change? Why is it so much more extreme? Well, because the assets under management are so much bigger. Ah, okay. Right? So if you're, I don't know the exact asset sizes, but if you're managing a $10 billion hedge fund, hmm. a 1% short position is $100 million, <laughs> right? If you're, man, if you're shorting a billion dollar market cap company, you have to be 10% of that float yourself. And if you have three managers, three different hedge funds who all want the same size, you're now 30% of the float just with three players. So just the, the, the size of assets growing and the number of participants have made it much more crowded. So there's another structural aspect of it that's incredibly challenging, which is that um, in all investing, though it's, it's easiest to describe in short selling and in levered ETFs, mm. um, the path of a stock going from 20 to 10 mm. matters a lot in your ability to, to make the money from going from 20 to 10. And so what happens is um, if you looked at the math of a leveraged ETF, so a 2X or 3X S&P 500, you know, bull right. three times ETF. If you looked at one of those ETFs in 2008 and 2009, what you found is if you were 3X long, if you held a 3x long ETF in the financial crisis, you lost a lot of money. Mm. If you held a 3x short levered ETF in the financial crisis, you also lost a lot of money. And you say, what? How is that? that possible? Yeah. And it has to do with the structure of those vehicles, which is similar to the structure of shorting, which is that it's 3x short every day, which means they have to rebalance every day. And when you have to rebalance to a target and there's volatility, what you find if you do the math is you systematically are buying high and selling low by a little bit. Buying high, selling low, buying high, selling low, buying high. And it's just how the math works every single day. So if you hold those vehicles over a long period of time, that eats you up if there's volatility. So it wasn't that the financial crisis went down like this and you made 3x. It bounced around a lot. And in those bounces, you lost money. It's the same thing with short selling, which is that because – if you are short a position and the position moves against you, it becomes a bigger position as it was, right? So if you're short a stock at $10 and it goes against you and it's $12, you now have a $12 position. Oh, and by the way, you lost money, so your denominator's less. Hmm. And so the position's even bigger than it would be if it were 12 compared to where you started. And so you have this dynamic where if, if shorts move against you, you have to rebalance your portfolio. You have to take losses and then you have to try to reset it when they've been working. And it's the same exact thing. So it's a complex thing and you have to really look through the math to understand it. But it's very, very difficult when there's volatility of single stocks to extract the value of a fundamental position going from 20 to 10. Um, and that has made shorting you know, incredibly difficult over time. So when you look, I mean, that to me was just like, wow. When, when you look then at something like what happened with um, 
Gabe Plotkin, I forget the name of his yeah. fund. Melvin no, Capital. Yeah. Melvin Capital. Um, what's your take on that, knowing what you know? And we just talked a lot about like risk management, how much more difficult it is to short. There was obviously a lot of flack that got tossed around without bad-mouthing anyone. What was your take on that situation? Yeah. So I think it's a particularly interesting situation because if you look at the precedent conditions going in, by all accounts in the institutional community, Gabe and his team are thought of as an outstanding money manager. Yeah, that's phenomenal analysts, money makers for a long time. So let's just start at the with the premise that this is a great fund that you would want to have your money with. Mm. Super interesting, right? Like not just uh, not just like some flash in the pan. Right. Um, well, in this particular case, which is often the case with anything you read about in the headlines of hedge funds. Um, you only read about spectacularly good and spectacularly bad performance. Right. Like when was the, you mentioned Farallon. When was the last time anybody read about Farallon? You never do. When was the last time anyone read about Davidson Kempner? You never do. Mm. When was the last time anyone read about Millennium? Almost never except for their asset size. Why? Because they're just, they're structured to just kind of make consistent returns. They're never mm. at the top of the pack. They're never at the bottom of the pack. Um, mm. Melvin in particular had astronomical returns and, and Gabe as a portfolio manager always ran a large book, meaning he ran with a lot of leverage. That and leverage like in any financial asset, it, it exacerbates your returns when things are going badly and it accelerates your returns when things are going well. Mm. So you had a portfolio manager who had really, really strong results for a couple of years. And then when something went badly, you know, they could lose a lot, but they could make a lot back fast because of the leverage involved. So, you know, I, and then you compare that to like this Archegos and Bill Wong was, you know, well-known hedge fund manager at Tiger Asia back in the day. Mm. Um, when you, when you combine leverage and concentration, yeah. you end up in, in really bad situations. Yeah, um, right. So I don't think, I don't know what was going on in Melvin's book, but I don't think it was a particularly concentrated book. Mm. It was just, you know, they, they, they got caught in stocks that got completely detached from fundamentals and yeah. that can happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was looking and reading and David Einhorn at Greenlight wrote about this hometown international, this New Jersey deli. So there's a business that's one deli in New Jersey that was making like $30,000 a year in revenue and was trading at $100 million valuation. Right. So what's interesting about that is think about a business that makes $30,000 a year. And let's say it's a modest growth business. You put a multiple on that of, you know, be generous and call it 20 times and say that business is worth $600,000. Mm. Well, if it's worth $600,000, anyone fundamentally would be super excited to short it if it was trading at 2 million, right? It's 3x overvalued. It should go down 60%. It went up 50x from there. So there are times where stocks, you know, really get detached from fundamentals and that's when shorting can get really dangerous. Now there's another side of that, which is almost comical, mm. which is, and Matt Levine and Bloomberg wrote about this recently, the GameStop CEO resigned and by all accounts, part of the reason he resigned was in his resignation, he's allowed to sell his shares. Why wouldn't you take advantage of that? You're never going to be able to turn that business around to the point where it's worth you know, a hundred times what you might do in your next five lifetimes as an operator. So there's all these kinds of weird dynamics that aren't healthy that play out when, when something like that happens. And it's not just difficult for hedge funds. It's sort of interesting. What does that mean for the company and, and all those kinds of things? I think I read the same Matt Levine thing. Yeah. He's pretty consistent across that. You know, even when Tesla was running up, you know, he, he basically was of the opinion people say, oh, you know, Elon Musk doing this, uh, 
this equity sale that's you know um, whatever unethical. If you have something that people want to buy for a high price, you should sell it to them. And he took it one further. It's like, how do you do executive compensation? Usually, a CEO is judged on the basis of the stock price. This stock appreciated, like you know, six hundred percent. So you could never. It wasn't six. It was like seventeen hundred percent. So what was he the most successful CEO of all time? Maybe that's what the market's saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, I've got a question for you because from an outsider's perspective, you know, when you think about something like leverage and when you trace a lot of the problem of contagion in financial system, to me, from an outsider, a lot of it you could lay right at the foot of leverage. And to use an example, like if you are a capital allocator portfolio manager at a hedge fund, or if you are the CEO of a, of a company, you're actually doing largely the same thing. You're allocating capital. If I, Mike, as one of the co-founders of BlockWorks, go out and take this big loan from a bank and I blow it all on, on dumb stuff and then I'm insolvent, it's like, shame on you, right? You were irresponsible with your debt. What it seems like from an outsider's perspective a lot of the time is that uh, folks within the financial system are allowed to take outsized risk. And then when it looks like everything is about to blow up, they've essentially taken so much risk that they can't be allowed to blow up. It feels unfair. It feels like a lot of the problem come from leverage. What, what's your perspective on that? Well, a couple of things. I, I think that that's right in that a lot of problems come from leverage. <laughs> um, and it's easy to see that in the rear view mirror, but if there weren't leverage, we wouldn't have loans to buy houses with. Right. Um, so there's a lot of positive things that accrue to the economic system from having the ability to have leverage. It's really the question of the prudent use of leverage. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that's where, uh, in, in the protege days, I had a partner, a guy named Chris Engdahl, who used to run the, um, the risk and the prime brokerage business for Bear Stearns back mm -hmm. pre-financial crisis. And Chris is as savvy as they come. And we were talking last week and I said to him, like, what, what? were these guys thinking? Like, is it as obvious as it looks from the outside that, you know, a bank should never, like Credit Suisse should never have lost that kind of money. And no one ever would have lost, you know, when, when long-term capital blew up, Bear Stearns didn't lose any money. Chris was running that risk book. So there are definitely some issues in, in risk management. Um, but the prudent use of leverage managed well can generate you know, excellent results for everyone involved. So take an example like a Millennium mm. um, that, that we've mentioned a few times. What Millennium offers its clients is the extraction of small amount of alpha and then the very efficient use of leverage that somebody else probably couldn't do to deliver an outstanding return that meets client spending needs. Mm -hmm. Now, because they have that leverage, they're always at risk, right? There's always there's always at risk that something will go wrong and could go badly wrong. Um, but thus far, for 30 years, they have managed risk extremely well, and that's worked for their clients. It's worked for them. It's worked for Wall Street, who's you know, extracting their rents in the middle. So it's not really a question of, you know, leverage is good, leverage is bad. Leverage can have risk if it's not used effectively. Yeah. You know, so I want to return to one of the points that you just made about one of the most performance hampering you know, factors for hedge funds or long short hedge funds is um, low interest rates. I had actually never considered that um, the interest that gets generated on the spread there when you're shorting something, you know, you could almost take it one step further because there's all this pressure about fees, right, which I want to get into in, in a little bit. 
Um, and basically there's this kind of prevailing attitude, which is like, okay, I'm okay with paying for performance, but I really wanna make sure that I'm not paying for beta and I wanna make sure that I'm paying for alpha. So when you think about a low interest rate environment, there's the obvious just interest that you can generate on what, whatever you're shorting, right? So there's that kind of right out of the gate. But if you look at over, you know, whatever it is, like a 20 year period of time, ultra low interest rates have led to tech stocks and the S&P in general just going up like this, right? And you can reason for as long as you want and say, well, you know, I know this isn't gonna last forever, whatever, whatever, but if you're paying extra for that short, right, as part of the long short, and it's like, why am I paying for these fees? I could have just been doing better, right? By just buying the S&P, right? Or buying the NASDAQ or investing in Facebook. You know, how much of that, because there's a lot of, you know, negative attention right now getting, I think, paid to hedge funds and their fees. How much is just low interest rates and the relative performance of the NASDAQ and the S&P to blame as well? Well, I, I think there's some of that. Mm. Um, you'd have to really go back. And, you know, I, we started talking at the, uh, the beginning about alignment of interest and some of the things that Dave Swenson did. Well, mm. in the mid-1990s, when short-term interest rates were called 6 7%, Yale systematically went to their hedge fund managers and said, look, if you're making 5% on a short rebate and I'm paying you a 20% incentive fee, you're making 1% of assets just for showing up. You're not doing anything. Right. And went and Yale went and imposed cost of capital hurdles on all of those managers. Mm -hmm. um, in the period of time where all this money has come into hedge funds, rates have generally been, certainly the last you know, 13 years, have been very, very low. Mm -hmm. And so the community may not be as attuned to cost of capital because cost of capital is zero. Um, rates have something to do with it. But in that period of time, in that last 10 or 15 years, it's not just rates. These are dynamic, evolving systems. And as a result, the sophistication of the players has gone up. There are more players in it. So the opportunity to say, well, if rates were higher, we would be doing better is gone because now if rates were to go up, the allocator community that's more sophisticated would say, well, we don't want to pay you the free amount that you get for showing up. Right. And what used to be beta, like as I mentioned in 2000, 2002, if you wanted to go long value and short growth, that was called a hedge fund. There mm -hmm. was no other way to access it. Right. Now with the proliferation of ETFs, there's a question of what is beta? Is beta market exposure? Is it style exposure? Is it market cap exposure? And you could break it down in more and more granular ways to get to the point where the true extraction of alpha is really only what you see at you know, some of these market neutral, either platform hedge funds or market neutral hedge funds where they're neutralizing all of these other systematic factors. Yeah. Um, now an investor could take that and put that on top of an ETF and say, well, I want S&P plus. You right. know, and there's one of the old Harvard spin outs, Adage Capital in Boston. That's effectively what they were. They were a long only fund, but they had what looked like relative performance on top of um, the market exposure and did very, very well for a long time. Yeah. Um, so uh, the hard part is that there's no like one answer, right? It isn't just, oh, they're not doing well because rates are lower. That's, that's true. They're also more challenged with increased competition. Um, you've got 10 years or 15 years now where public markets, it's all you had to do was own the market. By the way, nobody in 2008 wanted to just own the market, right, but right. that ended up being the right thing to do. If you look in retrospect, what happens over those long periods of time is that board discussion flips. 
Mm. So in 2002, when people would come in and say, why don't we have these hedge fund things that are working well? Now you've got this long enough period of time where the boards all say, well, why would we own a hedge fund thing? Mm. And once that long-term trend and discussion of the board flips, it's very, very hard. You'd need a significant event to flip it the other way. And hedge funds are not designed to have those significant events anymore. They were at one point in time in the past, but they're really not anymore. Mm. So what do you think about just hedge funds as an industry in general. I mean, you one way you could look at this and say, well, markets are a little bit more efficient. People know uh, more than they did back when hedge funds were generating these huge returns. Um, and also there are alternative kind of competing products like ETFs that allow sophisticated investors to get the exposure that hedge funds used to offer them. Is Are we looking at kind of a mature industry? How do you see, or or, or is, are there, is there just alpha to be found in, in different places than there used to be? And you hear a lot about these quants and like obviously the guys over at Renaissance, uh, they're still generating 100% returns. So is it just that the talent and, and where the alpha is has shifted or are you kind of looking at an industry that's in a little bit more of structural decline? I think it's an industry that's structurally mature. And in any industry that's mature, you get a concentration among winners. You, you don't have as many new entrants, and that's just any industry. So I think that's you've certainly seen that. Assets are very large in the hedge fund industry, probably the highest they've ever been. But the concentration is highest it's ever been. And so you have, you know, I just saw today, like Millennium's almost $50 billion in assets. Mm -hmm. Even when I left Protégé in 2015, there was nothing that was close to $50 billion. Um, so large funds then were 20 billion. And so you've seen the people who can manage more and more money are, are taking it in. Mm -hmm. um, but most institutions, if they have a place for a hedge fund structure in their portfolio, maybe it's not the same bucket it used to be. Yale for Yale, it's still absolute return. For long short equity, some put it in their equity bucket. Some put it in a diversifying strategies. Some might say, oh, no, some of these distressed things go in our credit bucket. So people are moving around the strategies into to different places. But for those who have a place for them, they're already invested. Mm. Right. So you don't it's not like, say, the crypto world where this is a novel area and yeah. people are sort of figuring out, is this something new right now? Is it venture capital? Like, what is it? Mm -hmm. But over the next five or 10 years, if the technology and use cases continue to progress and it becomes a broader area to invest in, you'll see allocations go from zero to something. Whereas yep. hedge funds, they are where they are. So the, the only growth in the industry will come from aggregate assets growing, and that's a GDP type number. That's just the definition of a mature industry. I gotcha. You know, it's funny that you bring up crypto. When I was hearing you describe hedge funds back in the 90s and their perception about what, and people just didn't understand what they did, right? And there was a relatively uh, small number of people even in the world who could execute on stuff like this. I, I couldn't help but think about what's going on in crypto right now. And you kind of see these astronomical figures and you hear about all these people that are generating real, real generational wealth, right? Um, and, you know, if you look towards some of the more weird esoteric corners of crypto, like, I don't know if people on the show are going to but yield farming and stuff like that. It's this weird area, right? That just nobody understands. You see all this nut stuff happening. And the really intelligent managers, actually people who are doing it in a sophisticated way, are just harvesting a ton of value from the market. And I just couldn't help but be reminded when you're describing the early days of hedge fund about what's going on in crypto right yeah. now, honestly. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's right. And the hard part is trying to figure out what's, how do you put that into the structure of what you're already doing? That's exactly right. 
ironically, I actually think fund of funds will probably see a renaissance um, because just, you know, it's so difficult to actually diligence managers. And, you know, one thing that comes out of crypto as an industry in general is sometimes the folks that are really good at doing these wacky things to generate yield or whatever they do, it's actually not, it doesn't look like a traditional uh, skill set of an asset manager. So it's just really tough to spot. Um, yeah. So I actually think, and speaking of kind of fund to funds, seeding hedge funds, I've actually loved, you mentioned Protégé. Uh, so after Yale, you eventually found your way to Protégé Partners, where, which you co-founded. Can you talk a little bit about how Protégé came to be and what some, like, what did you guys do there? Sure. So Protégé was a hedge fund of funds mm. um, that focused on smaller hedge funds mm. and really implemented in two ways. One is just investing in funds like any other uh, allocator would do. And the other was seeding new funds where we would do the same thing, but take an economic stake in their business. Mm. And um, the business came out of that period of time. So it started, we started the fund in July of 2002. And I had gotten introduced to my former partner through some friends in the business as I was, I had done some direct investing after business school and then um, went back to the manager side. Um, and it was a fairly unique strategy because at the time, large funds, which were then considered 1 billion in assets, were closed. So you couldn't give money to Farallon back then. There was a window of time for a couple of years where a bunch of those larger funds just weren't taking any more money. Mm -hmm. um, and so people would wake up in the morning and say, well, the, these strategies are great. How do I find another one? And so we started, we called it protege because we were looking for the proteges of those great fund managers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it served a great need for, for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, returns were good. There was, we had a belief in this sort of small manager advantage. Um, and so you, you think about how do you structure a portfolio to take advantage of that? And then that the seeding piece or the extra economics you'd get, uh, as assets were coming into the industry, the risk was back then, and this is a long time ago, but that, that returns would come down because assets were coming in. And so what you wanted to do was own the business where the assets were coming into. So you could sort of hedge the hedge. Um, Oh. And so that was part of the thought process behind that strategy. If you owned a piece of those businesses and assets come in because the, your main returns get diluted down, well, then you can extract the economics. So we put those two things together and we were somewhat uniquely situated to do that because at the time you had to know what you were doing in the industry to get access because access was a problem. And we had this de novo balance sheet and my partner and I had both had experience in the industry. So we, we kind of put those two things together and it was a good ride for a long time. That's fascinating. You actually stole the first question right out of my mouth, which was, why do some people invest in the management structure behind the hedge funds and not just be an LP in the funds? So am I saying it right that basically you're the management fee, essentially, that you're you gain access to? It's kind of a hedge on performance as more asset flows in or how, how do you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, it's a different strategy, right? So you're right. backing a fund and just as, as if you're providing equity, you're not. We didn't provide equity. We would just invest in the fund, but they would generate management fees and incentive fees from that, and that would provide the working capital for their business. Got it. So, um, and we would negotiate to earn a piece of their management and incentive fees in the future um, based on that early support, just like you would as an equity investor in a new business. So it's a little bit different in, in mindset. I mean, they, they it tends to be... It, it tends to actually be less of a hedge and more of um, uh, more of like an augmentation of what you get because if a fund performs well, those are the ones that will gather assets and generate the extra fees. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't perform well, 
other people won't invest in it. So it doesn't matter that you own a piece of the equity because the equity is not going to be worth anything. So it tends to be, you know, even more binary in the outcome. That's fascinating. And what is the what is the kind of landscape today look like for seeders, right? It's a pretty small group, right? It's like, I know Blackstone does that, but it's a pretty small group of people that actually seed hedge funds. It was, it was always a pretty small group. Um, yeah. Part of the reason is that the model itself isn't so, it looks like venture capital, but it doesn't generate venture capital like returns. So as a business, like if it were a business that generated very, very high returns, you would have had a lot more players over time and a lot more capital in it. It, it proves to be hedge fund plus or minus a little bit uh, in terms of the returns you get. And as a result of that, most of the players have kind of washed out over the years. You know, I'm not as familiar today. I'm not in that market. Um, but Blackstone is certainly a big player in everything that has to do with hedge funds. And there, there are a few others, but it's it's a small number of people that are still providing seed capital to new hedge funds. Yeah. And I know you're not, like you just mentioned, in the business of still seeding fund managers, but how is the archetype of a hedge fund manager kind of changed as you have progressed through the industry. Like I have this kind of mental image of the old hedge fund managers, this swashbuckling, you know, smartest guy in the room type thing. And I feel like that has changed a little bit. So how has how has just the archetype of a successful hedge fund manager changed over the course? Of yeah, your I mean, it's changed dramatically. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's probably right from 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the the biggest initial shift was probably uh, the Fed's Reg FD, which I'm, I'm forgetting exactly when it was, but that normalized the playing field for information. Mm. Um, so in the past, before then, it wasn't illegal information, but you'd have situations where large clients would have access to management teams more than other people and management teams could answer questions that they asked. And so they would have access to information um, that others didn't. And that changed the landscape of the game too. You know, the biggest thing is from, from you know, over the last 20 years is the institutionalization of the market. So it's no longer one person swinging around in most instances, <laughs> Archegos notwithstanding, um, you know, trying to make a lot or lose a lot of money. There's a certain return stream they're trying to generate for their investors. Um, and so, yeah, they're very professional businesses today. Yeah. That's what it seems like on the surface. Um, there's a lot more just professionalism around the industry in general and a lot more emphasis on operations, processes, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, it really does seem like that. Um, I, I have one more question before we kind of transition into talking about capital allocators, but just going back to what you we were saying about short selling, you've been in the investing industry for a long period of time, right? It's kind of ironic that as it's become very difficult to be either a long short manager or a short seller, right? God forbid if you're someone like Jim Chanos, um, it's, as it's been really difficult for them structurally, there's a lot of heat that's coming under short sellers as well, like the evil, evil shorts, right? And you, you know, you've got kind of some pretty famous money managers, guys like Jeremy Grantham coming out and saying, all signs point to us being in a bubble. If you look at valuation metrics, everything is kind of off the chart. If you look at, you know, price to earnings or the CAPE ratio, anything like that, What's what's your perspective? Where do you? Th it's almost such a broad question, but where do you think we are in terms of this market cycle? Yeah. Um, so I have, I, in my early years, David Swenson taught that nobody can time markets, hmm. and you know, so every like everything he taught, I took it as gospel, and it took me years of trying different things and playing around with things to come back to a lot of what he believed. So I tell people that I don't believe in market timing. And when I say that, I mean it very, very deeply. Meaning like, I could tell you that I think what Jeremy's saying is right, 
But I could also tell you that he was one of my very first manager meetings in 1992, and at the beginning of a bull market, he was saying the same thing. So I wrote a piece. We have a premium subscription, and I write uh, a couple times a month for those members. And I, I wrote a piece called I Told You So a few weeks ago. Mm. Um, and the idea is that when Jeremy's out there saying what he's saying or Jeff Gunlatch is saying there's a you know a bear market in bonds and uh, – you know, even Mark Cuban was saying he thought Bitcoin was in a bubble, even though he's supportive of the ecosystem. Right. At some point in time, there will be a correction. Mm -hmm. And one of those people will be right in their assessment. It might not be them. It might be somebody else. And that person will say, I told you so. <laughs> but if you really want to think about investment outcomes over a longer period of time, you have to think about more than just that incident. You have to think about what was the opportunity cost of them being wrong up until that point? Mm -hmm. Who else along the way was saying something that proved not to be right, including perhaps them. And are you better off along the way having tried to make that call and being right or just not paying any attention to it and letting markets compound? So, you know, my, my personal experience in that was we were the largest day one investor in John Paulson's subprime mortgage fund. So in 2006 wow. and 2007, the greatest trade ever, according to Greg Zuckerman, um, we were the largest investor in that on the first day it launched. And I, so I experienced someone who said the sky is falling and was right. And I watched what, and, and after that, I started paying more attention to those types of people or situations. And what you find is that there are many, many, many more of them than play out. And so... I, I have my own sort of views about, like, where are we in the market cycle? I believe none of that matters. I mean, even Howard Marks saying it's important to know where you are in your cycle, he's absolutely right on a 50-year perspective. But long-term investing, true long-term investing, is three- to five-year windows. You know, there, there are a very small number of people who are Yale and can invest for much longer than that. And that's not you and I. And it's not anybody listening to this show. So... The real windows are three to five years, and in three to five years, literally anything can happen. Um, so I don't, I don't make market calls. I don't believe in them. I prevent myself from investing that way. I always stay fully invested in everything I do. And um, so I, I have no idea what will happen. I could say, oh, I think this, that, or the other thing. And it's really hard to not express opinions about things. But I, I don't think it adds any value. I've never seen it add value, and so I just, I just try to – refrain from even my own thoughts on that yeah you know it's so fun it's like more money has been lost preparing for recessions than is actually lost in recessions and you know one observation that i've kind of felt deeply actually being in the media or a media company is when you start to make a name for yourself right you you kind of almost unintentionally pigeonhole yourself in a certain way and it took me a while to get that you know, there are just bears and there are bulls and the bulls are always bullish and the bears are always bearish. And I get why, because as soon as you're right on the first one, uh, you know, no, no shade here. But if you're looking at a guy like Nuriel Rabini, he also called the crisis, right? And everyone was like, hey, you're this great crisis caller. And now it feels like he's looking for more crises. And I get why that's your reputation. So I just totally see how it happens, actually. Um, yeah. That was really good. That was a very good perspective, though. That made me smile because I sometimes I worry about that you know, as a young person. Um, cool. Actually, I sorry. I gotta ask you this as well. We yep. did touch on crypto very briefly, but 
What are your thoughts in general on just Bitcoin, crypto, whatever it is, this whole new emerging kind of asset classes? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm really curious about it. I mean, I did a I did a mini series earlier this year called Crypto for Institutions. It was just four episodes right. great. to describe what's going on because the institutional world is paying attention to it for the first time. Well, let me start with my conclusion. I own some Bitcoin and Ethereum and I have on and off, fortunately on over the last, almost the entire last year. And it, it's, there's no, there's nothing different or novel in the case for why. I think it's a very asymmetric uh, inf inflation risk hedge to some extent, mm -hmm. um, a technological innovation, all these kinds of things. I view it still as sort of venture capital. Like I'm, I'm paying attention. I don't know enough about what's really happening in, in DeFi protocols and base layer protocols and NFTs or, you know, in DAOs as they all evolve. Um, but I've had the fortune, the good fortune to be able to talk to some of the smartest investors in the space. And I'm pretty convinced that I can't, I can't, some of them may be able to, but I can't predict where this will all play out, but I think it will be much, much more meaningful five or 10 years from now than it is today. So, that's just a place that I want to be exposed to. So right now I'm doing it in a really simple way possible. You know, I do have some understanding of where institutions are, are looking and thinking and what, again, what happens in the boardroom when it goes from why aren't we doing or Why would we ever do this to why aren't we doing this? And you're at the very, very beginning of that conversation in, in crypto, which today means Bitcoin. Um, and so, you know, and I think Ethereum's the next obvious one for, mm -hmm. for, to get exposure called like index like exposure, whatever that means. Even if you look at the index funds, it's still like 60 or 70% Bitcoin, another 20 in Ethereum. And then there's a whole bunch of other things. Okay. Um, so everything else feels like venture capital to me and, you know, valid thesis in venture capital. Uh, venture capitalists always get excited about the new, new thing, an old Michael Lewis term title of a book from way back when. And, yeah. um, Today, that's crypto, and it might be something else. No, probably not. You know, It'll probably be something else on the blockchain two years from now. And so finding ways to get exposure to that, I think, is valuable. I just think it's a very, very small part of how I think about a big portfolio. I totally agree. Yeah, super measured. I, I in general, like, you know, I, I think in that space, it tends to evoke a lot of passion for whatever reason. You know, people get pretty emotional about the entire thing. So, yeah, I think just reason that's dangerously rational, Ted. Um, all right, I, I want to ask you, I want to spend the, our closing minutes here talking about capital allocators. Um, I think you've just done such a good job. You know, when I think of people from the allocator space, like Ted Seide's the first guy that pops into my head, like talk to me a little bit about like what led to you building this brand and the podcast and everything, and then let's get to the book. Yeah, um, so I, the most important thing I would say was that like this was not by design. And once it's fun to, for, for that to be happening is something I'm involved in and you've heard We've all heard people talk about that, yeah. but I, I left Protege. I wasn't finding what I was going to do next. I wanted to be engaged in something. I had I had written a book about startup hedge funds, and so I had been on a few podcasts. This goes back four or five years, and um, and I just had this idea one day. I was like, well, maybe I should just go run around and talk to my old friends. Like, I don't want to just be focused on hedge funds. I want to know what what's been happening. Mm. And so I just started doing that. And, you know, I'd been in the business for 20 years. I had a lot of great relationships of really, really great investors that people don't know in the public eye. And they were happy to sit down and chat. And it just kept going. So it was probably two, three years. I was I had a bunch of other projects I was working on. 
and and now probably not quite two years ago, a year and a half ago, where most of the bigger projects I was working on fell away. I still had a bunch of smaller stuff and advisory relationships. And I just, this is what was getting traction. And so I have a little sticky note on my computer that my executive coach said to me one day, it was probably a little over a year ago. He said, you know, you should stop. Everyone's asking you, like, what do you want to do next? What do you want to do next? Maybe one better way to think about it is what's the world asking of you? Mm. Not what do you want to go do? And what was clear to me was, People were coming to me to help them tell their stories, period, whatever that meant. And so I said, okay, I'll just, you know, keep doing this and see if we can turn it into a business. And it's grown a lot um, in the last year, year and a half. I've hired a couple of people. We're, we're working on a second show, which I think is super interesting in the same, in the same ecosystem, but a super interesting way of, of sharing kind of some of these stories in a different way. And so that, that looks like it's going to come together and be ready in a couple of months. And, and then all kinds of things come off that. We're starting a, a, a training program. Just, I wouldn't call it, we're calling it Capital Allocators University, but it's you know more of a, just a, a program for that's kind of early and mid-career allocators to just accelerate their development. The book came out of that. And then, you know, I'll probably start a fund again in another, I don't know, year or so when some of these other things die down. And, and that really came out of once this business was taking care of like my cash needs. I went back to investing my, you know, the money I didn't need to support. And after a year, particularly on the less liquid side, I'm just kind of running out of my comfort level of investing in things that are less liquid. So I think in the future, at some point in time in the future, I'll reach out to some friends and just say, Hey, like, I'm, I'm just seeing really cool stuff. Let's just do this together. So it won't be anything like protege, big institutional business. Um, but I'm really looking forward to that because it's, Investing in money and investing in people is what I've done my whole career and, and have the most fun doing. Yeah. And I'm sure probably a lot of people listening to this will have either listened to Capital Allocators or know you, but I would just say personally, like that was one of the first, in, I have no background in finance at all. And literally listening to your show was super educational for me. Um, and there were plenty of episodes I had to go back and listen to like five times because I didn't understand. <laughs> That's awesome. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Awesome. Well, Ted, if people want to find out more about you or the podcast or the book that you just released, what's the best way for them to get more information? Yeah, everything's housed on a website, shockingly, capitalallocators.com. So, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of there's a free email list that I send something out once a month. There's premium content. Uh, the book, which came out of the podcast, which we, you know you touched on, came out last month. And um, yeah, it's all it's all there in one place. All right. You heard it, everyone. You gotta go check this out. It is phenomenal content. Um, Ted, you've been super generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot My of fun. Pleasure. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care.